Welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. My name is Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. All right, so today's guest is Louis Menand, and I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think I've ever been so excited to talk to someone for the show or to release an interview, because not only is Louis a professor at Harvard and longtime New Yorker staff writer, which let's be honest, lots of people are those things, uh, he is also my favorite nonfiction writer of all time. And he's written two books that have really just fundamentally changed not only the way that I see things, but the way that I try to go about seeing things. And the first one is this book um, called The Metaphysical Club, which won a Pulitzer Prize in the early 2000s. And it is the story of uh, a school of philosophy called American Pragmatism. It centers around these four individuals, William James, Oliver Wendell Holmes, John Dewey and Charles Sanders Peirce, and essentially how their ideas evolved and ideas that became truly foundational to American thought out of the world that they were a part of. And basically what this what this book did for me was that, you know, I'd always been interested in ideas, right? Like that's sort of like an academic thing. It's like, okay, yeah, let's you I want to talk about ideas but like you know what the metaphysical club did is it took the notion of philosophical ideas of conceptions of the, of the way the world works and situated them within a particular world and so in the metaphysical club you see how these ideas came out of not only the the interactions and the friendships and the experience of these individuals but the larger society of which they were a part and the way this book executes that is so profound and so incredible. And I just see, never seen anything like that before. And I really haven't since um, until another book comes along 20 years later, which is called The Free World, Art and Thought in the Cold War. And that is Luke's newest book. Um, coming out just now in, in 2021 and, and in many ways uh, a sequel to the metaphysical club 20 years later um, in the sense that you know they cover two different uh, pretty much non-overlapping time frames uh, and by virtue of doing so look at two different stories that need to be told in two substantively different ways and so metaphysical club is very much the story about these these individuals and sort of making a, a linear narrative out of that and the free world, the only way that I can really come to describe it is as an act of world building. It's one of these things like a Tolkien or a Tolstoy or something like that, where you just feel that you've inhabited a place that you that is so real that you wouldn't otherwise have been able to inhabit. And that's essentially what Luke does for, you know, to put a label on it, art and thought in the Cold War. You've got Jackson Pollock, you've got Claude Levi-Strauss, you've got George Orwell, um, you've got all this stuff that is just the sort of cultural mainstays of 20th century America and, um, you know, the West in general during that time and bringing it all together into this incredible, incredible on-the-ground visual experience, visceral experience of, of what's happening. And 
of course, also links back to these larger ideas of, of what did these people think about? How did they think the world works? How did that grow out of the society and the experiences that they were a part of? And um, it's just incredible. It was a profoundly reorienting experience to read this book um, and, and also to be able to place it, you know, sort of in that contiguous context with the metaphysical club. So um, it's, I wouldn't say that I've just given a great summary of, of either book, but, but that is to say uh, they're both big investments in terms of uh, very long and can, can like, you know, they, they take a lot to, to engage with, but oh man, there is pretty much nothing else uh, that I could point to that give you as much bang for your buck. And I highly recommend uh, that if, if, if any of this stuff sounds interesting to you, to, to go pick up those books. Um, they've made a huge difference in, in my life, and I just want to say thank you to Luke for, for writing them. And in addition to that, that all of his other stuff is pretty cool too. So a uh, big fan of his New Yorker essays, um, his um, book on the marketplace of ideas, about a, a higher education in America and, and that sort of stuff. So he's, he's just one of my, my favorite thingers and someone I admire a lot and has done a lot to inform the way that I think about things. So it was a huge pleasure to, to have him um, on the show. I was definitely nervous going in because I am always sort of reluctant to, to meet my, my heroes and that sort of stuff. But uh, it was really fun to talk to him and he's such a writer's writer and so it's just cool to hear his take on on writing and, and thought and, and composition and, and, and all this sort of stuff so I really enjoyed talking to him and it sort of puts in context for me a lot of the things that I have engaged with in his writing and it's cool to see the sort of personal dots connected throughout that so at any rate I think you really enjoy this conversation and without any further ado here is Louis Mand. So the first thing I usually like to ask people about is, uh, is where did you grow up? I grew up in New England, uh, mainly around Boston. Yeah. And uh, what's what was your what was your family like growing up? Did you have did you have brothers and sisters? What did, what did your what did your parents do? What did what did that all look like? Uh, I have I have a younger brother, younger sister. Um, my my parents were intellectuals. Uh, my father <clears throat> uh, was an academic administrator and teacher and he ended up teaching at MIT and um, my mother was born a little too early uh, and otherwise I think she probably would have been a philosophy professor or an English professor but she didn't really have a career academic career um, so th but they were very intellectual people they <clears throat> had very little interest in popular culture we didn't own a television or we kept it in the closet um i wasn't i didn't watch much television when i was growing up it was very book oriented family my parents were also very liberal um and when i was a teenager the big issue in my <clears throat> for my father was the war in vietnam so that became a big issue for me um even when i was 15 this is 14 15 16 years old um and uh and his politics were, he was a New Deal liberal. He was a sort of Roosevelt liberal. Um, so his politics were somewhat to the left. Um, and uh, he, I learned a lot from him. 
Um, so I dedicated the book to him because it's, this is really was really his period. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, you mentioned that in the, the introduction. Um, you know, so coming from that sort of background, I guess I, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that you ended up uh, in Pomona for undergraduate. Yeah, because uh, I think of you kind of like okay, boom and and you've got uh, quintessential East Coast intellectual. Uh, you know, cut his teeth uh, out in in California. Uh, so what? Uh... Yeah. You want? You really want to hear this story? Yeah, this is... yeah. All right. We were living in Haverhill, Mass. So Haverhill, Mass is about thirty miles north of Boston. It's uh, on the Merrimack River. Lawrence and Lowell, or also Methuen, they're all up there. And so it was a mill town formerly. We were living there as a very depressed city when I was growing up. My father was teaching there, and. Um, there was a private boys school nearby in North Andover called Brooks. And uh, my parents knew some of the people who taught there and they thought well of the faculty and they thought I was a good student and they decided they would send me there for high school, which was, I think, a weird decision. Um, I would have been happy to go to the public high school because all my friends were going to the public high school. They wanted me to go there. So I didn't board. I was a day student originally. and. The school was uh, very. It was based. It was modeled on Groton School. It was very small, but it was basically all white, and uh, it was religious Episcopalian. So we went to church every day. Uh, we had to wear a tie and jacket every day for everything, classes and meals, and we had to play sports. Um, so it was a you know it was a very old fashioned kind of English boarding school type of setup, which my father liked because he had a kind of anglophilia and they did have very good academics so to give them credit but it was a it was a very warping experience because most of the other kids were very rich i had a scholarship they lived on park avenue and they owned very expensive stereo equipment and you know they just had a completely different life laid out for them from my life um but when you're a kid you don't really notice those differences so it was fine i liked it um the school uh though very small was kind of a feeder school for Harvard and uh, meaning that their top students all went to Harvard as opposed to like Yale or something or Princeton. Um, I don't know how that arrangement was worked out, but that's what happened every year. And so when I applied to college, the school said, just, you just need to apply to Harvard because, you know, you don't go to Harvard because I was, you know, one of the better students there. They had, they had good students. So it wasn't like I was way ahead of everybody else, but I was clearly qualified to go. So, this was in 1968, 69, and of course, that's when, for people like me, Vietnam and student protests and the whole sort of politics of the 60s start playing a part in your life, and I was regarded as a little bit of a radical or a rebel. Believe me, this is we're talking about very minor stuff, but I think the school was very conservative and the headmaster in particular who was quite old at that point was very conservative he didn't like this newfangled stuff and i think for whatever reason he picked me out as a, as, as a bad apple so uh in april of uh my senior year at the school my father gets a phone call from the headmaster he, we're now living in washington dc my father worked in a poverty program for a while <laughs> headmaster calls him and he says I'm going to talk to the Harvard admissions office tomorrow. I want to know if you'll be coming to the fundraising cocktail party for the school next week or whenever it was. And my father hung up the phone on him. So I did not get into Harvard. 
So Pomona was my backup. I'd never been to California. I actually know very little about the college. They had a nice catalog. That's basically, it was just, you know, I have to fly somewhere. So I ended up going to my backup school. But it was great because I hadn't been there. I wanted to go to California in a kind of 60s way. And it was, in those days, it's, 3,000 miles was like going to the moon because you didn't have internet, you didn't have Zoom, you didn't have, you know, you didn't have cell phones. You, you know, you basically were in another place. And that was really important for me to get away from the East Coast, get away from my shitty school and all that, that stuff that happened and to be in a different part of the country with kids I would never have met before. Um, so that's how I ended up going there. It was just, an, it was one of those curves in the road that, you know, nobody really, I mean, I think you're right. Everybody thought he'll go to Harvard, he'll become a professor, but it happened, but it took a much longer <laughs> route it's, to get there. It's kind of hilarious, uh, and not to skip ahead too much, but it's kind of like you've been, you know, for most of your young adult life, you were trying to avoid Harvard. Uh, <laughs> uh, at several different points in the road, you, you were at the gates and you're like, well, uh, yeah. you know, we can get into that uh, later, but um my uh, my understanding is that when you got to Pomona, you wanted to be a, a poet. Yeah, I was a creative that, writing major. Yeah. So what's um, I guess I'm interested in the bookends of that uh, of that that interest. When did you sort of take that on as like, okay, this is a path that I'm really interested in? And then when did it occur to you that it was not going to work out for you as a yeah. as a poet? I didn't. I'm not sure I ever thought I would be a professional poet exactly, but I, I did, I loved writing poetry. I started when most kids do like 12 or 14 or something. And then in high school, I wrote a lot of poetry. It was pretty terrible stuff, I think, but you know, I really enjoyed doing it. And then they had a quite a good creative writing program at Pomona college. Um, some really interesting people who taught creative writing workshops and also happened to be in a class of students who included a couple of people who later did become professional poets who were quite good, Brenda Hillman and Garrett Hongo. So they were my pals. And we loved, you know, we loved contemporary poetry, went to poetry readings, we got the little magazines and and we wrote our poetry. And But I didn't think I'm going to graduate and become a poet. So I went, that's why I went to law school first. I had kind of a different plan. Um, but I, with, to answer your question, once I left college, I couldn't write poetry anymore. Um, and then I after a while, I realized that what I could write was nonfiction prose. And for me, writing nonfiction prose is just the same as writing poetry. Trying to get the right words in the right order. It has the same sort of mental challenge as writing a poem. And that's what I ended up doing. I didn't think I would do that at college. But once I got out, I realized that was probably, I was better at that than using metaphors and stuff in a poem. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So what was the... I mean, I guess law school is the classic, you know, well, uh, I'm good at writing and the, you know, humanities side of things. Uh, here's how I'm going to apply my trade is, is in, is in law school. Was that the sort of game plan? Uh, and yeah, what did, yeah, I guess when, when did you realize that that, that wasn't going the way you hoped it would? That was not the game plan. Um, so this is 1973. This is Watergate and it's going on. And the, I was fascinated by it because, as I said, you know, my my family life was all about politics, and um, my father was obsessed with Richard Nixon. And so I watched the I watched in college. I watched the Watergate hearings, and one of the things that you realize when you watch those, or you felt, was that the heroes of this story are lawyers and journalists, and that that's what you wanted to be. You want to get into that 
line of work is that they're really changing the world. Um, they're making the president resign. And so it was very heroic. It wasn't just about making money or using your smarts. It was actually about having some kind of a politically uh, effective role in the world. And then you know, I had, I had politics for, for the reasons I gave you. So that's why I went. I didn't go. Hmm. I didn't go because I thought I'd be good at it or anything. Um, I, I wasn't very good at it. Uh, so, um, so the answer to that part of the question is that uh, I've often tried to figure out what exactly went wrong or why it was the wrong choice. Um, I think part of it is I went to Harvard, and Harvard's very big, so uh, <clears throat> there's a, just a lot of students in the class. Unlike, for example, Yale Law School, and um, the teaching is done in these huge auditoriums. You've seen the movies and everything, in which there's somebody asks Socratic questions to the calls on people and asks them questions. And that's how the whole first year went there. It was all done that way, and I found that very. Uh, I didn't get anything out of that because I couldn't understand what what we were arguing about. And I later figured out that the, my problem was that I didn't have any intellectual background really in legal thought or really much of political thought. So I didn't understand what issues were involved and try to reason out the result in a case. I just thought you just apply logic, but that's not the way it works. What it, the way it works is that you have a background theory of what you think law ought to do, which is say redistribute wealth. And then in a tort case, for example, you're trying to come out in a way that will redistribute wealth from insurance companies to individuals or whatever. Um, and if you have a different theory of the law, then you don't try to do that. So I think a lot of people, the kids in the, my class, uh, had been political science majors. They knew what they were talking about. They didn't have a clue what I was talking about. So so, so I was just not getting what we were doing very clearly. And I'm a person who needs to kind of understand the idea for, of something in order to do it. So that was frustrating. I didn't know anybody. I was because I've been in California for four years. That was a little frustrating. Um, and then I had to write a brief for. We had moot court in the spring semester, um, which, as you know, involves uh, you're given a appellate case, and then you argue it before a sort of panel of usually real judges who come and do it. And I had a partner who was even flakier than I was, who thought that the pyramids were built by extraterrestrials. And, and we were just a terrible team, and we were told that our brief was really not up to, up to legal standards. So I just thought, I can't write like this. I can't think like this. And I think at the end, that's what it came down to. I, I don't think there's just two sides for any question. I think there's like 15 sides. So I'm in a good feel for that literary studies where you don't, you know, there's many things going on at once that can be contradictory. That's very congenial to me intellectually, whereas taking a position, unless you really believe in it, uh, taking a position for the sake of argument is, doesn't appeal as much. So while I was in law school, I spent most of my time reading novels, and uh, I realized this is fun. I want to keep doing this. So I went to graduate school in English, not expecting, not have a very clear idea what I was going to do with it, but just feeling like this is what I feel like doing right now. And it, worked out for me well let me just say i'm so glad you dropped out of law school um <laughs> yeah me too <laughs> god i mean like because i you know i've i've i have a number of brilliant friends who come to mind that it's like you know that that is kind of how they they went is like okay you know i think i could i think i could do law school well um and uh they're so brilliant and i'm like you know that's great i'm sure you're gonna do really well as a lawyer as i'm sure if you had gotten through some of those uh things uh, you would have but uh 
I, I yeah. <laughs> At any rate, it's boring. most of it's boring. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's you you. I can tell you refuse to write about anything that you don't find interesting. So I can actually believe that you did a terrible job with some of those. That's true. That's true. Um, yeah. Okay. So that's that's interesting. So what what? How did you end up? What was the first thing you did after after walking away from from law school? Um, was it? Did you immediately move to New York? Did you immediately go to Columbia? Did you immediately? Uh, say like, okay, I, I've been digging the novel stuff. I know I want to do a PhD in in literary studies. What did that What did that look like? Yeah, I I, I applied to Columbia, got in. I also got into the uh, journalism school. Hmm. I went down. This is very not me, but I I did do it. I went down and asked to speak to the dean of the journalism school, and I said, you know, I I could go to the PhD program in English, or I could do the journalism school. What do you What do you recommend? He said, What do you What do you want to write? I want to write for the New Yorker. He said, don't go to the journalism school, which was good advice because they, they're training reporters. It's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I went to the English program. Part of the reason I went there is I had a girlfriend who was a PhD student in sociology there. Uh, and uh, I hated New York. It was 1974. It was a horrible time to be there. Um, and they didn't have any money and all that. But um, I really liked, turned out I really liked literary studies. I was surprised uh, a little bit. Um, and uh it was it was a terrible Columbia is a terrible place and a great place. It was a terrible place because institutionally it's just very cold blooded and um, it's not a friendly place. But the program was great. I learned a huge amount about history of English literature stuff. I still remember now. It was just I had a great education. I really loved all of it. And then I got a fantastic job, sort of unexpectedly, when I first started applying for jobs. So I, you know. If I hadn't gotten the job, I would have switched careers probably, but I got a great job, so I stayed in it. Yeah, yeah. When, okay, so I know your uh, sort of early PhD work, or I guess, yeah, your that, that sort of time in your career, you were focusing on modernism, and then uh, shortly after that, T.S. Eliot. So when did you kind of, when did you, when did you, like, when did you realize T.S. Eliot was your guy in like a, in a, in a pretty, pretty big way? Yeah, I know it's a little strange. I was a Victorianist originally, so Columbia, um, the big figure at Columbia for many years was Lionel Trilling, and he was a Victorianist. He wrote on Matthew Arnold and you know the nineteenth-century British writers. And uh, <clears throat> my college teacher was had been a student of his, and was also a Victorianist, and I loved the Victorian period. So that was my field when I was a student. But my dissertation was about the modernist reaction against the Victorians, which is Eliot's a big figure there. And so I ended up writing a lot about Eliot's early literary criticism, most of which had never been collected. Um, so it involved, I mean, not very hard research, but you know, digging all this stuff out that he had published in these little magazines. And um, then when I was hired at Princeton, they wanted a modernist. I'd never taught modern literature. I think I'd never even taken a course in it, but that's what they hired me as. So then I had to write a book on modernist literature. So I wrote it on Eliot. Um, I think Eliot's an incredibly fascinating figure. Um, he, it's, it's disappointing that he's so toxic now because he is toxic, but he's had incredible influence on literary studies. He basically created the modern English department without wanting to. And um, I found his, I also found him just an interesting intelligence in his both his poetry but also his criticism i just think it's i find it fascinating so i wrote my first book on him i didn't enjoy writing that book at all 
uh, I think I felt under, it was a tenure book. I felt under pressure. I wasn't sure that I had, what I had to say exactly. But I did spend a lot of time with, with T.S. Eliot. Yeah, one of my, you know, going off of what you just said there last, one of my favorite things to do is to take my my favorite writers and who, the ones who I admire and, like, they've written some of my favorite things and see the stuff uh, that they wrote before they were, you know, in that uh, uh, thing. And so I loved going back uh, to your T.S. Eliot book uh, and, uh, you know, reading passages like, hmm. So that's yeah. that's where uh, some of this uh, started started off, you know. It has some good stuff in it. But yeah, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, but uh, but yeah, no, it's an, uh, I found that an interesting exercise. But anyway, I, I've been. It's interesting that like when in your work you kind of pose questions like, well, how did, how did you know you're you're working in the history of ideas that sort of stuff? How did someone like me get here? When you ask that question about yourself, the answer always comes back to T. S. Eliot, uh, because you know he was. Uh, this this crucial person in the uh, transition into literary criticism as this formal field and that sort of thing, oh, and so he's yeah. he's but, right. you uh, you know I kind of think of the um, the line about well what what does what is a poet doing when she writes a poem uh, you know she's responding to other poetry that sort of I'm bot I'm botching the the, the line yeah, yeah. But that that kind of is is to me a, a a kind of refrain of uh a lot of your work throughout the years that you've come back to and found new uh light in in what that perspective well i find means. yeah i i find that very limiting also because you're uh what ellie created by this method was the essentially the new critical notion that the only thing that really needs to be taken into account when you're reading a poem is another poem don't need to know anything about the life of the poet or whatever historical circumstances. I don't believe that myself, but it's true. But it is true that to get what a poet's trying to do, you have to say that Paul's trying to write a poem. What does that mean? Well, you look at other poems. So in Eliot's case, that was sort of a very early formalist position that he took around 1920 when he was still very young before he wrote The Wasteland. And then he evolves out of that into some kind of very <laughs> crazy social criticism. But but that was a very powerful idea that you could isolate the poem uh, from everything except other poems and get somewhere with it. Yeah. So, okay. So around this time, uh, so you've got that going, which uh, I guess you were, your first teaching job was at Princeton. Um, right. And so you were, you were on track with that. And like you said, working towards tenure with the, the Elliot book. Yeah. And then this is also when you, I guess, did you start writing for magazines in graduate school or was that after graduate school you started doing that? It's the very end of graduate school. I wrote I wrote a couple of pieces on movies, I think, for magazines. Yeah. And then I continued that when I started teaching at, at Princeton. Yeah. Yeah. So who were the who were the writers that you were looking up to at this time? Who were the the prose writers that you studied while you were trying to still get your your voice and that sort of thing? Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I've ever imitated a writer. I mean, I've tried to write my own my own voice, but I think the writers that I admired the most and maybe wanted to be like the most were people like Janet Malcolm, Jane Kramer, Joan Didion, and then a writer I could never imitate but think was a great journalist, Norman Mailer. <clears throat> so 
these are magazine writers. They're not academic writers. They're not even public intellectuals. They're just writers. And that's what I wanted to be. Um, so those were the, those are, I wouldn't say models, but those are the kind of figures that I aspired to emulate. Yeah. Yeah. Was there anything, I guess, like, I get that, that you weren't trying, you couldn't be Janet Malcolm. Uh, but what, what did you, can you, can you say what it was that you were looking at in them uh, that you're like, mm, I could, I could try and do something like that in my own way. Yeah. Um, try to find the right adjective for this. Disinterestedness, I guess, is the right word for it. Mm. I was going to say coldness, but it's just an ability yeah. to step back from the situation you're under, trying to understand, see it clearly. Uh, I think that's that's my goal as a writer, as a historian and a critic, and I think that's that's what I admired, particularly in Janet's work, which can be a little cold-blooded, but you know, there's something there's, that's important uh, to be able to tell like it is. And Joan obviously was great at that. So that's those are aspirations for me. That kind of writing, Mailer's not quite like that. With Mailer, it's more it's just unbelievably entertaining to go on the ride with him, and he sees things that other people never saw or don't see. As a journalist, he was a good reporter. I mean, a certain kind of reporter. Um, and uh, I enjoyed reading his work. I enjoyed reading Hunter Thompson, Tom Wolfe, not so much. But you know, the sort of gay to least the new the new journalists of the '60s. Those were, so that's the magazine world I kind of grew up in and wanted to be part of. I wanted to write for Esquire. I didn't want to write for Partisan Review. <clears throat> um. Yeah, and then okay, so one of uh I guess one uh motif that uh you know we talked about was trying to stay away from Harvard for as long as possible. Uh another one <laughs> is that uh you have done this a couple times where you ended up writing about an institution and then subsequent to that got a job offer from the institution. I think that's how you started writing for the the New Yorker, right? Is that you wrote a story about the New Yorker and an editorial uh, shift and then uh, you got a call you know a little bit later on and you're like hey so uh, do you want <laughs> yeah. uh, I think that's an interesting uh, stratagem for for landing uh, landing a job it's a it's believe me it's well known uh, trick of the trade yeah yeah uh, that's really funny um yeah so uh yeah I guess so around this time I don't know like uh Obviously, it was lucky that you got a really nice job uh, at, you know, Princeton. That's great. Um, uh, but then, yeah, do you feel like that traction just continues continues going? Or is there a point where, um, you know, trying to balance everything between the academic work you're trying to do and the journalism and that sort of stuff, um, did that always play out, you know, sort of evenly and nicely for you or, or what did, what did it look like in this, this sort of, this sort of stage around here? Um, I mean, it all worked out in the end, but you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. I think, so what happened was that I did not get tenure at Princeton and I had a, a seventh year. So you're come for tenure or six year. I had a seventh year and then I would have to find another job. And incredible piece of good fortune was that an editor at the New Republic, Ann Holbert, was taking a leave to write a book. And I'd worked with her and she asked the magazine asked if I would come down and fill in for her for a year. So I did. And it was 
incredible experience. I mean, in every possible way. And I also just learned about magazines from the inside, which is really helpful when you're trying to write for magazines. And I got to know, in those days, the New Republic was very hot, just the Reagan administration. Uh, everybody in New York publishing read it. Um, and then, you know, people would write to you and call you and ask you to write for them. And like what contract came out of that and you know, all that. It was just a great place to be visible in and also incredibly interesting, smart people. So um, when I finished my year, I applied for two academic jobs and I got was offered both jobs, but I was also asked if I wanted to stay at the magazine as an editor. And I kind of did, but my wife wanted to move back to New York and so I took the job at Queens College in New York, but I kept up my journalism. So for for a while, it was a bit of a juggling act because I was Queens College is very teaching heavy load. You teach six courses a year, and I was, at the same time I was trying to write for the TLS and the New Republic and all these other places. So it was very crazy time in my life, but I was able to juggle them. And then, you know, gradually things evened out a little bit. But for most of my career, I've had two full-time jobs, magazine writing and teaching. Um, and it's been, it's, there have been times when it hasn't been manageable. Like when I first came to Harvard, it was not manageable, but it's gotten better and <laughs> I've gotten better at it. And I, you know, I couldn't do one without the other. The appeal to me is that there's things about the magazine world that are very different from the academic world. People think differently, different standards for your work and so on. And um, it's sometimes good to get away from the academic world to go to the magazine world, be with in that culture and vice versa. There's things about the magazine world that can drive you crazy. <laughs> you want to go back with the professors. So um, I feel really lucky that I have, when I get one, one side of my life drives me crazy, I can go spend more time with the other side of my life, but I don't have to give them up. Yeah, no, I, I can see the appeal uh, to, to that a lot. Is there any, I mean, is there anything in particular uh, about one culture that kind of supplements the other? That it's like, well, when I am in this mode of thinking about this, I go to this side. And is it, yeah, is there anything, you know, exam by way of example that you can say like that? Um, there's a lot, I mean, the differences are not, not that substantive. I mean, the people in the magazine world are basically people who could have gotten a PhD and didn't. They all had the same education that I did, um, pretty much. Uh, so it's not like it's not like they're completely completely different track. But there's a much bigger reality check in journalism than there is in the academy, um, and they're very aware of that. So um, one form of that is that you're writing for an audience because you're trying to sell a magazine, and you you're not just writing for the 200 people who are specialists in your field. In the academic world, your audience can be very, very small. It doesn't really matter as long as the specialists are on board with it. So that's, a, that's just a different way of thinking about what you're doing. <clears throat> and then in the magazine world, if you write something stupid, you can get fired. In the academic world, you can publish endless number of stupid things. You can't get fired. So for journalists, they just think that's weird um, that academics have this freedom um, or protection, uh, and uh, so that's that's part of it. I think that what 
academics want that journalists have is an audience. Mm. And what journalists want that academics have is academic freedom. <laughs> so that's, that's part of the difference. The magazine world is also politically correct in a different way. Um, I mean, there's political correctness everywhere, but there's a slightly, you have to kind of pick up the, I remember when I first went to the New Republic, I was astonished that people, things people would say in editorial meetings. You can't say that. That's so incorrect. But, you know, but that's, you know, they just think, they just talk differently. Um, um, so that's all, I think that's all really interesting for me yeah. to be exposed to. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting. All right. So um, metaphysical club. Uh, you, you you remarked, uh, I think in, in a couple interviews before that once you got like a couple pages under your belt of that book, writing that book, you knew that you were on uh, a you know mini hundred page mountain that you were gonna climb. Uh, so yeah, where when did where did the initial inspiration for thinking about um uh, that book and about pragmatism and about the pragmatists come from? Yeah. Yeah, so that comes from law school, oddly. Um, I, um, when I was teaching at Princeton, I taught Princeton in 1980 to 1986, and there, that was a period when of critical legal studies, which was this movement of law professors who did a kind of political critique of the law and political institutions, uh, like legal realism in the 1930s. And... Um, was very big at Harvard, not when I was there, but afterwards. And these critical legal studies critics, which were regarded as kind of anti-foundationalists by other legal scholars, um, often use literary theory or critical theory in their work. And this brought issues of literary theory and uh, uh, in, in critical theory into law, the discourse of law schools. And there was sort of a debate about is there an objective understanding of a law or interpretation or, you know, the stuff that people debate about in literature departments was being debated about in law schools. So I had a professor and when I was at Harvard Law School, Morton Horowitz, who taught torts, was a great, he was a great teacher. And uh, he wrote an article. He's very interested in Oliver Wendell Holmes. And he wrote an article which I read, which was part of one of these debates going on with critical theory and stuff, in which he mentioned the Metaphysical Club. I'd never heard of it before. And so this is probably around 1985, and I was like, oh, this, 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 this what is this thing? Or something like that. It just stuck with me. So um, I eventually, when I was at the New Republic, decided to write a book proposal on based on that, knowing quite little about it at the time. And then uh, that became... That became the book. The pragmatism piece of it was a little different. That's so. When I went to um, Princeton, nineteen eighty, was the high, heyday of theory. So all the young professors there were theorists of one kind or another. They were Althusserians or Foucauldians or Derridians or whatever. And I didn't have a theory. I was just an historian, and I felt uh, ashamed not to have some theoretical chops because I felt you, that's what you need to do your work because you need to have a theory to back up what you're doing when you write history or when you interpret a poem or whatever. I didn't have one and I didn't, I didn't think I had the kind of mind that would work that way. And then in 1982, uh, Richard Rorty published a book called Consequences of Pragmatism, which is a collection of his essays. He published his big book, 
three years before called Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature. He was at Princeton in the philosophy department. And my friends were reading Rorty and I started reading it and I read Consequence of Pragmatism. It just blew me away because I realized there are people who think just the way I think. They're pragmatists. It just, that's the way I think. Um, and <laughs> the story that when Henry James, when William James sent Henry James, his book called Pragmatism, published I think in 1908, uh, Henry James wrote back and he said, I realized my entire life I've unconsciously pragmatized. That's how I felt. I felt like this is, this is how I think. I think like Rorty thinks. Um, and I think like William James thinks. There's nothing wrong with it. I can just think this way and write this way. And, and I did. It was completely liberating. So the metaphysical club was an intersection between this way of thinking, which I was very attracted to, personal reasons, and the story of Holmes and so on that I read about in Morty's uh, article. How different was the book proposal for Metaphysical Club than what it actually turned out to be? You know, I don't even remember. It probably wasn't very big. Yeah. Sure, it wasn't very good. <laughs> I mean, because I mean, that's just the nature of book proposals. You don't, they're just giving you some money to write a book, ultimately. They have faith in you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and I got a couple fellowships and then, you know, I was able to get started on it. Yeah. All right, then. Uh, here's another kind of point blank question like that. When did you, when did you, so you knew when you started early on that it was going to be big? When did you know that it was going to be really good? That physical club? Yeah. Like, did you, because, uh, I mean, it, it turned out to be a really, you know, a monumental work. Uh, did you have a sense of how important this story was going to be, you know, by the time no. you, you finished no, telling it? No, I just trying to write it. But, I mean, honestly, I never thought about that. I didn't, even, I didn't even know how to think about stuff like that. I just thought, I, there's a good story here. Uh, I'm going to try to tell it the best way I can. And then when I finished, I felt very pleased that I felt that I'd done what I wanted to do. I really wasn't thinking that the book would, certainly didn't think it would be monumental, but I, you know, I was hoping people would like it. I just didn't, I didn't I mean, now I know how the business works much better and you do think about how it's going to do, but I wasn't really thinking that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And then, so I want to talk a little bit about the writing process of, of, of that book. Um, well, that one thing to that though, yeah, I did please. think this, that please. by the time the book came out, uh, there'd been a lot of academic writing about pragmatism because it, because of Rorty partly it had taken off and there was books on feminist pragmatism and practices in architecture. And, you know, a lot of books on political theory and pragmatism and Dick had published several more books, uh, Rorty. Um, but there was no crossover book. So one thing I was conscious of was that this will be the first book on pragmatism that a non-specialist can read. So I did. I was shooting at that target. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So so writing it, uh, one thing is that uh, your style, it sounds like at this time, was to essentially do a straight shot through the the text, composing it in that way as opposed to doing very piecemeal and coming together and sort of gluing a, you know, sort of pastiche uh, text together. When did you, when did you yeah, so when did you start uh, uh, working like that as, as a, you know, because I think it's a way that maybe lots of writers feel the more, uh, you know, okay, I'm going to put some 
pieces together. I'm going to make it through the first draft and then we'll try and put it together uh, after that. So when did you, when did you start writing like that? Well, when I wrote the Elliot book, I tried to write it that way you're describing. I had a lot of notes on this, that, and the other thing, and I would put them on the floor, <laughs> that kind of thing. It just it was didn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I decided I would just write one sentence at a time. And writing for magazines helped with that because it, it's just a more focused kind of writing. You don't have a lot of space to waste, and you have to make your points and get through the piece. So I started writing one sentence at a time. I think of it as like kicking a carpet, you know, just... Once you, get, once you get it head in the right direction, it just should unroll by itself. And so that's how I wrote the metaphysical club. Yeah. I think, I think it sounds kind of crazy to, to some people, uh, that, you know, that, that style of just writing, uh, all the way through. Yeah. Um, but you know, people, since people do react, people do react th- that way. But, uh, you know, since I have seen, you know, you talk about that kind of stuff previously. I actually tried it, and I, I liked it a lot better than allowing myself to write a messy draft, because yeah. it kind of it kind of makes you sit up and take the the project seriously, and you don't just dash to it. I think there are a couple yeah. th- couple yeah. things that I that I liked about it. So one is I'm kind of of the opinion right now that like when you write something, you either a get the idea right or you don't, uh, and b you either get the execution right or you don't. Uh, and if you didn't get the idea right, then you need to start over, rethink that. If you didn't get the execution right, then, you know, a couple small tweaks aren't going to, to fix it. You're going to need to start over. So it's less, you know, like editing in the sense of uh, moving pieces here and there and more just, you know, about rewriting. And obviously a good editor does make a difference, but uh, it, it, you know, you can't take a silly piece and edit it and, and, and make it brilliant. Um, and this you know kind of makes you solve that and the second thing is is um uh and this is a point i've seen you make about it, is that it does, it makes it flow better you write it all the way through and it reads coherently and it flows and i and i love that i think that i think that that comes through uh in both the process of, of writing it and certainly in the process of, of reading it yeah. yeah um but uh yeah what um what time of day do you like to write <laughs> I, I never like to write. I mean, <laughs> I, um, but usually late afternoon has always been the best. I don't know why. I'm older. It's not as good as it used to be, but used, it used to be sort of around four o'clock. Things would really start to click. Really? What um, do you spend your mornings doing then? I'm not a morning writer, no. Yeah. I mean, now I can. Now I can write any time of day, probably. When I started out, I felt that when it was a stage where I needed inspiration to write. Um, I could, morning was never really a good time. Yeah. Plus, I'd already written most of the piece, but to start a piece in the morning didn't really work. Mm, interesting. To be there's, it's like there's a voice in there. I have to get in touch with. It takes a while to get in touch with it. Yeah, that's interesting. So you you feel like the the voice doesn't uh, get warmed up until later on in the afternoon, or at least back back in the day. Yeah, that's there's a story about Luciano Pavarotti that before he went on stage at the Met, he would take an apple and take a big bite out of it, and spit it out, then he would go on and sing. And for me, that's a little bit like writing is that you're, you need something to turn on this voice that you, I have this voice, I think, that I hear when I write. It's not, it's not, I can't do it right now. I can only do it when I'm writing. And when I, and I'm always interested in what that voice has to say, but I have to hear it. So it could take a while for it suddenly, oh, that's, that's me. Yeah. You know, this is going to work. Uh, so, I mean, this is like writing. It's like, that's why I say it's like writing poetry for me. It's like, there's, I have to somehow have to express something. This is how I'm going to do it. How do you tend to separate out the the research from the the writing? Is it 
um, okay, I'm going to sit down and read the whole 600-page book on this one mm-hmm. person, and I'm not going to make any commitments during the time. I'm just going to get a sense of maybe highlight some stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. And then uh, I'm going to do, a, you know, okay, now I have an idea of, like, here are the things I want to go through. I'm going to take more detailed notes. What, 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 is it, what does it sort of look like? Uh, no, that's how I do it. I read. I try to read everything first um, and get it in my head, and then um, your brain—you you will know this much better than I do—but your brain will work while you're not paying attention to it. And if you, I think, if you put the material in your head and let it gestate a little bit, sometimes for a few days, uh, it will. When it comes out again, it'll have some kind of organization to it, and that's what you need. So if you're overwhelmed with data basically when you start out you're not going to be able to make sense of it but if you wait and for the stuff to kind of order itself into some kind of something looks like a narrative then you're good to go and then i try to have done all of that before i start writing even though as you're writing you have to still look stuff up and you know you find these new areas that you have to explore um but yeah so that's how that's how i do it so most of my time is spent doing the homework really yeah for the yeah if i don't do the homework the piece is never as good yeah and then uh, one thing that i love about your essays is that you know so a lot of a lot of writers what they'll do is they say like okay i kind of have my way that i do a hook and uh you know like you can kind of see the the template start to take shape uh over over time and uh one thing that's really cool in, in your pieces is that the the hook could be a story. It could be a particular scene. Uh, it could be a particular sort of series of events. Or it could just be, we're going to talk about the idea. And logically, if you think of the idea, this is uh, the structure of it. And uh, we don't have to try and create a, a nice little a scene for you to imagine and, and get into that. And you're very comfortable doing all those things. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder, is there is there a way that you consistently think about how to start um, because, you know, when you kick that rug, you know, that like the, the kick is the thing that, that gets it going, you know? The first paragraph is the hardest to write or it takes the longest to write because you are basically setting up the whole whatever's going to follow from that. The rule of good writing is that it's much harder to stop reading it than it is to keep reading it. And most writing is the opposite. Most writing, you rather stop than keep going. So with particularly magazine writing, you want the person to finish the piece when I was a kid, we got the New Yorker in the house, and there used to be a guy who wrote about horse racing. He had a column, which is probably 1,200 words or something, or something like that, every week during the horse racing season, and he would write about Belmont Stakes or whatever it was. His pen name was Audax Minor, and I know nothing about horse racing and could care less about horses, but I used to read the whole column. And it was because once I started, I, I just felt I had to keep going. Um, and that's really what good writing is. It's just writing that you want to keep following. So when you're writing it yourself, when you're looking at your work, you want to think, is the reader going to get bored, Turn, get grab the remote control and change the channel or flip to another story um, or just find that it's too hard to make sense of what you're trying to do. So a lot of academic writing, for example, begins with a quotation. So frequently they'll, they'll quote a letter or something that an author has written, and there'll be this very laborious unpacking of the quotation. And it, all it is is throat clearing to get to the argument. 
I hate that because it's just too much work. I don't want to figure out what this passage means. I want to get to whatever it is you're trying to talk about. So um, I don't think I'm great at it, but I really try to make sure that in the first paragraph, there's no stumpers. It's like, why is he talking about this? Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. Somebody once said that the, this is a long time ago when I first started writing for magazines, that the typical piece by me would begin War and Peace was Leon Tolstoy's, it's Leo Tolstoy's second novel. That would be a good <laughs> first sentence. And it's, I don't write that way exactly, but I get the point, which is that you want to read the next sentence, you know. Uh, whereas if you say in you know February 1874, Leo Tolstoy remarked to so and so, blah, 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 it's like that's just too much work. You know, spare the reader the work until they get into it. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a hard stop at two thirty here? I want to know whether we should uh, just. I do not know. Um, yeah, because I want to ask you a little bit about uh, you know. Uh, so yeah, I guess Metaphysical Club comes out in two thousand one, and does you know it does pretty well. Uh, it does it does all right. Bestseller. <laughs> Um, but I, I, again, I kind of alluded to this, uh, earlier as, you know, so, uh, you got Harvard, you got, you know, hired by Harvard a couple of years after the book came out. So I guess I'm wondering, like, did they like call you up and were like, Hey, you know, thanks for writing a great book about us. Uh, you know, you want a job? Like how, what did, what did that, what did that transition look like? It doesn't quite work that way. No. Well, after the book got a lot of attention, I did yeah. get a bunch of offers to leave CUNY when I was teaching at the Graduate Center, which is a fantastic job but i was the the problem with cuny is just that the institution is basically treads water all the time so i felt i wanted to be at a place where you can make stuff happen i'm very interested in higher education as an institution and i want to see what i like to play for the yankees so um so of the offers that i got i I took the harvard job they just called and said uh, would you be interested in maybe coming to harvard if so could you come and give a job talk so I went up and I gave a job talk and uh, offered me the job. Yeah. Yeah. What, uh, I guess, you know, gosh, I mean, where were you? Yeah. What did you, uh, you know, cause the metaphysical club, uh, what did you feel after it, 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 it came out, right? Were you surprised by how well it was received uh, in, in, in the world afterwards? Like, what did you, what did you make of all that? I was, I was, I was totally surprised. I mean, I don't know if surprise is the right word exactly, mm-hmm. but I would never have, if you asked me in advance, what's going to happen, I never would have said things that happened to it would have happened afterwards. You think, well, it's the kind of book that would win a Pulitzer Prize because they American history and, you know, it's generally accessible. It's not like, not like that was completely inconceivable, but it's not something that I ever imagined would happen. It just seemed incredibly lucky when it happened. Um, or that it sold reasonably well. Um, that also does something that we just didn't think about that because the advance wasn't that big. So, uh, so that part was surprising. I did feel though that I did hit the target in terms of there being a general interest in this period and this uh, philosophy that wasn't really been satisfied by the kinds of books that were coming out, which were more for specialists. So, I think the general people with general interest in American history who weren't academics liked the book. Accessible turned out to be something they wanted to know more about, but didn't know how to learn about it. So I think from that, you know, that was what I wanted to do. So that part of it was gratifying that it, that it, that it worked. And then I felt subsequently, this is the book that God wanted me to write. You know, it's how I feel about it. It's just the, it's the I'm the perfect person to write that book. Yeah. Uh, or put it a different way. It's a perfect subject for somebody like me. Let's put it that way. 
you just know, it's, is my kind of subject. Kind of so interesting uh, about that is that you were interesting characters, ideas, American history, relative big canvas. It just was perfect for me. So I feel that's why the Lord put me on earth. Yeah. You know, it's kind of interesting about that and, and it kind of goes along with that is that, you know, it was, um, you know, I guess putting together some of the pieces you were saying when you first encountered pragmatism, you're like, Hey, that's the way that I think that, 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 that really sits well with the way that I process things. Uh, and one thing, uh, you know, that, that you've mentioned in your, your cold war work is that like, well, that was, it was kind of a time when pragmatism was not in, in vogue. Uh, that was, and, but that was also the time that you were, uh, not necessarily coming of age per se. I mean, it depends on how you, you know, put it, but like, you know, that, that was in a sense, the time in which you were formed, uh, was there. So there's kind of an, an interesting juxtaposition between your, uh, you know, naturally suited tendencies yeah. and the the era in which you came of age in. Yeah, that, that's a good observation. Yeah, we were in college. We didn't, nobody knew from John Dewey. Nobody read John. We read Freud and Marx, you know. Um, and, uh, but, but, but also to your point, it was a very ideological time in the 60s and 70s. People had, you know, views of the world and they uh, functioned out of those views. Uh, conformity with those views. And I didn't, I wasn't good at thinking that way. So there was nothing around me until I read Rorty to tell me it's okay if you don't think that way. I thought I'm not with it, you know. Um, you know, it really, it did bother me a lot because I just couldn't figure out a way to kind of, I didn't figure out what, what I should read to kind of get it. Um, and then I realized I didn't need, I didn't need that foundational I need first philosophy to do what I wanted to do. So, yeah. So it didn't come from my childhood at all. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think my parents were not, wouldn't call them pragmatists. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It came, it came from the kind of this kind of post-ideological moment in the eighties. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, and uh, when you, when you say that, like, you feel like this was, you know, what God put you on earth to do is that, do you mean that, do you mean that metaphorically? Or do you mean that religiously? Like, are you, uh, I guess I'm curious, are you? I, I, I mean, something, something put me here. Something yeah. made me the way I am. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. But you I feel mean, a deep uh, person. I don't think there's a supernatural entity out there, but I think it's, you know, consciousness is a miracle and yeah, you, you come with certain things you can do and can't do and you try to make the most of them. And that's, I think that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, and a consciousness is a miracle, and a writer finding the subject that works best for her in this right. in this truly profound way. I mean, that is that's the biggest miracle of all, as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, uh, when that happens, thought, yeah, this yeah. is what everything's leading to this book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. Um. So when was when did you feel like okay, I'm ready to start another decade, you know, long project? <laughs> Because Metaphysical Club took you, you know, a, a decade to to do. When did you when did yeah. you feel like you were able to bite something off that, that was that big again? Um, it took a I had to it took a while. Um, part of it just was moving here was very disruptive part of my life, and I was still trying to write for the New Yorker full time. And Harvard is very very competitive, and demanding work environment for everybody. It's just crazy. You I don't remember, say. 
huh? You don't yeah. say. You've been here, yeah. It's, yeah. I've never been in a place like this. It's nuts. Uh, people prepare for faculty meetings. I mean, they write out their speeches. It's just crazy. So I had never been around that before. And I thought, well, I'm, I can handle anything, but I, it was more than I could handle. Plus, I was commuting. My family was living in New York. My kids were still in school there. Um, my wife didn't come up. Um, you know, I was here three days a week. And I was teaching, you know, these very intense courses and involved with all kinds of department crap you have to do. So I just didn't, I could barely turn around for about four or five years. Um, and then I, things got straightened out. And then I was, I was able to settle down and work on a big project. But what I did in the meantime was write this book called The Marketplace of Ideas, which is basically a collection of lectures that I gave at UVA and um, about higher ed. And that book actually got a huge amount of attention within the higher ed world. So I didn't give a lot of talks. I traveled a lot, visited campuses. It was fascinating um, stuff. Uh, so that kept me busy for a couple of years too. And then I, that's when I started writing this book. I had, I'm in my Widener study now, and this is where I wrote the entire book because I was able to finally, after being on the waiting list for eight years, get a study. And, uh, it's like an office and I could just come here and work without interruption. So that's oh, what really, so you're, you're in Widener library now. You have like a, yeah, a I'm in my study. This is my, that's study. really cool. Oh, that's awesome. It's great. Yeah. It's like an office. It's big as my office almost. Yeah. That's, that's sweet. So that when I got, when I was able to, when they gave me the study finally, cause there's a huge waiting list for these things um, that really helped me focus on it. And I moved here and, so Cut back on my magazine writing a little bit. Is that way? That's where you wrote Marketplace of Ideas. Is that what you're saying, or you wrote a Free World there? Free World. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Actually, I'm a huge fan of of Marketplace of Ideas because it, uh, uh, you know, not that anyone ever said it was a bad book or anything, uh, but it's <laughs> yeah, like it. it um, for someone who is a young person trying to make sense of the academic landscape today. And you start asking questions about, well, why are things so fucked up? Um, <laughs> this book does a lot to set the groundwork for how to answer those questions. Like, what is the world that I'm encountering today? And that book is the one that has spoken most directly uh, to that. So I... That's the, that was the goal of the book. Like, yeah, here are the issues that we face. Why do we... What are they? Where do they come from? Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's not... Uh, it, it wouldn't make a good doorstop uh, as a book like some of your other uh, your other works were. but you know for for that particular goal that uh, when you publish lectures that's what the book looks like it's yeah. just I the contract was I had to publish them right for the UVA yeah they let, they, they let Norton do it instead of UVA press so that was the deal so I, no I'm very happy with that yeah um, book and as I said it got people especially the general education material people were very interested in and I was able to go around and, you know, talk about people's <clears throat> general education programs. Yeah. And that, I, you know, that's also a function of being in Harvard, which, you know, as you've often noted, is, is where a lot of conversations around this sort of stuff. It's one of the epicenters of, of where those conversations are, are going to uh, happen. People want to know uh, what's happening right. on that campus, that sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> when... Um, yeah. So when you when you started off uh, with Free World, what did you think you were doing? Did you like 
Yeah. What? Yeah. I guess uh, I'll leave it open ended like that. What did when you started conceptualizing or working on this book? What did you What did you think was going to happen? You know, this is a book in which it took a while for the plan for the sort of vision of the whole thing to emerge. Uh, I just started with Kennan because that was the logical place to start, <clears throat> George Kennan, and um, I just tried to see what what would follow from that. So. In the beginning, it was just like, well, here's the Kennan piece. What's the next piece look like? Here's the Orwell piece. And then at a certain point, when I got to the existentialism chapter, which is the third chapter, I realized this is going to be a huge book. Um, and then I tried to start thinking about where it would end. And that's when I realized that the natural ending point was going to be Vietnam. And, um, and then after that, given the scale of what I'd already written um, and the way that I treated each topic of the chapters, it had a certain predetermined length. It was just going to be 18 or 19 chapters. Um, and I knew I had to cover the civil rights movement. I knew I had to cover the women's movement. I knew I had to cover the, you know, the beats and whatnot. And I just, so then I just started doing them and each chapter took, six months or so to do at least six months some of them took a year and you know each one as you know is sort of like a mini book um so you can actually read them in any order that you want although ideally there's an arc to the story that you get by reading them consecutively but you don't have to do it that way um so that's so that's that's how it turned out i mean i would the thing about the manifesto club was it had a kind of real through line because it had these four biographies that were anchoring the whole story and uh you could go off in different directions but you always came back to james purse holmes dewey and this doesn't have that and i think it would have been a big mistake to try to do that and it's just this, the period's too diverse and too too many different things going on at different levels to try to make that work so instead i did what you called i use your phrase of vertical cross sections and uh i think that work for my purposes it enabled me to talk explain things without getting tangled up with connections that didn't really amount to much yeah that's that's really interesting that you were that you did compose it for the most part in the order that it came out to be i imagine not quite exactly I did, around. I did cut a chapter at the end but um i had to cut seventy-five thousand words from the manuscript which is like a whole book <laughs> You had I to did, cut 75,000. Yeah, I, I, did, I did cut one chapter, um, most of one chapter. That's hilarious. Uh, so I had really 19 chapters, ended up with 18 chapters. But um, then I cut a, quite a bit from, uh, from the early chapters, but I wasn't really sure exactly what shape it was going to take. I, I wanted the material to dictate the shape of the book. I didn't yeah. want to, I didn't know enough to decide how it was going to come out exactly. But once I got halfway through, I could see where it was, where it was going. Did you did you have as much fun writing this book as um, no, the Physical Club? No, no, for the reason we're talking about. It's just it was like kind of climbing Mount Everest eighteen times. You know, was, every <laughs> chapter was like this huge thing. I mean, James Baldwin, for example, is just a very complicated person, and I spent it took me forever to try to even get a vague handle on that guy, um, uh, so I could write those chapters. That would, I, you just can't sit down and read a couple of articles by about James Baldwin and do it. So, so that that was that was a lot of work. The um, structural anthropology was a huge amount of work. Uh, yes, a lot of material was in French. Uh, 
I mean, it, you know, it was just, it just took a long time to put all the pieces together. And then the social history part of it also was all new research too. High school, you know, economic growth, all that stuff. Uh, so it was, it was a lot more work than the, it felt like a lot more work than the metaphysical club. I'm just as happy with it as a book as I was with the other book, but it was harder to write. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, I mean, one of the many incredible things about this book is how much range it took to be able to speak authoritatively um, in any in any capacity about all of these different things. Yeah. Uh, and to, like, there's just, I can't really think of anything else that you have one mind, however good it is. Uh, you know, your mind, is, it's, it's definitely, it's, 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 it's got its merits. Uh, but like you have one mind and you see all of these different parts of the world, all these different vertical cross sessions from the perspective of that one mind. That's just a very, there's very few human artifacts that that is uh, true of. Uh, you almost have to go to something like a Freud or something like that to get one person to opine uh, in, in you know, obviously uh, yours relied uh, slightly more heavily on facts than, than what Freud was going yeah, to do. I so. <laughs> uh, uh, but to get any any version of perspective on that many different sides of, of, of life and reality. But, you know, that's how literary, literary journalism works. You know, you get an assignment. Yeah. Could be a book or something. Yeah. And about something you probably don't know very much about. And then you have six months usually or four months to do the homework and come up with 4,000 words or 6,000 words. And you have to find something to say in a field that you haven't spent your whole life on that's reasonably um, uh, sound in terms of scholarship. Uh, that's also interesting and fresh to people who are out of the field and possibly even people who are in the field. And then you have to do it all over again. And that's my whole career is doing that. So it, this was harder because I wanted to take account of the scholarly literature as much as possible. Um, it's heavily footnoted. It's, everything is researched. I had it fact-checked. I'm sure there's mistakes in it, but still, you know, I really tried to make it exactly right. And uh, it was just doing on, on a much, much bigger scale what I would normally do for a piece for the New York Review of Books or something like that. How did you use the classroom to workshop the story? Because I know you've been teaching on art and yeah, thought in the Cold it's War. It's a mistake. For a while. Yeah. Yeah. So the Metaphysical Club, I never taught any of that material. Um, after the book came out, I taught a course at UVA Law School on pragmatic jurisprudence. That's the closest I ever came to teaching pragmatism. But this book, unfortunately, um, I started teaching a course here at Harvard on the Cold War. It wasn't a very good course, but it was a Gen Ed course. And uh, I stopped teaching it because it got very big and I wasn't happy. And then after several years, I started teaching a, a smaller course called High and Low in Post-War America, where I did a lot of the material that's in the book, uh, like Cage and that stuff, the art stuff, movie stuff. And uh, the course had you know reasonably good enrollment, like 50 to 70, which is at the, at the moment pretty good for English. And the students were very enthusiastic about it because they were interested in Warhol and Duchamp and these ideas which they weren't familiar with um and that went well and it made me feel excited that a younger generation of people are interested in learning about these figures who they've heard about but never really you know were part of their own sort of upbringing yeah. so for people my age Allen ginsburg is an old story ellis presley maybe warhol but for people who are 25 now or 20 it's a lot of that stuff is new and, it, and it's interesting so 
um, and they can relate to it. Um, so that that made me feel encouraged about the book project that there was going to be an audience for um, of younger readers. Yeah, you know it's 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 interesting how um, even though you pretty much never write about yourself uh, in any direct sort of way, it's interesting how personal all of your work is, um, especially taking metaphysical club and free world uh they're both very much recreations in a sense of 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 worlds that are important to you pragmatism for the reason that we talked about which is that it's a worldview that sits well with you but also like you know maybe this is reading too far into it but i mean uh growing up in new england uh there is a lineage with you know American thought in 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 New England that your your family definitely had some connection to, and so it's it's many ways uh, uh, that and then Cold World Cold War, uh, it sort of picks up uh, where that leaves off in some respects, uh, and that is the world that you you know sort of that you grew up in and uh, had the, all, all of these early formative experiences in, and so it's it's interesting how. You know, when you sort of look at that uh, all the way through these massive worlds that you've you've created, how, how much that actually is a function of your own personal uh, experience and perspectives and, and all that sort of stuff. I agree. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so we. Yeah. Is there were there any differences in the the writing process? We talked a little bit about it, but when you know. Uh, did you did you approach composition of of these sort of things in a different way than you did for for metaphysical club? No, well, not really. No, I mean, you know, each chapter was its own thing, and yeah. um, I would spend a chapter, and then I would spend a certain amount of time doing research and thinking about it, and then I would write the next chapter. It was pretty pretty much the same thing. Yeah, they just it's just the chapters. Most of the chapters took a lot longer, and so some of them turned out to be quite long and they cover lots of different things so yeah. each one of those things requires a lot of required a lot of learning to do yeah no it wasn't it wasn't that different so um one thing that i've learned from you in the sense that like uh you know i've, I've studied it i'm not sure that i can can, can can emulate it or approximate it or pull it off my own way but i guess i think of it as register probably isn't the best word for it but it's i I guess it's it's how to talk about everything right because that's kind of what you do right there's there's the people there's the ideas there's the societal events there's the large-scale trends uh there's the individual moments uh mostly it's historicized if there's a lesson you know for the present maybe we can you can insert that um but you know you, you create this world and you look at it from the outside and anyway you do all that sort of stuff i mean it feels uh more academic than entertainment does it also feels more entertaining than academic work typically does so it's it's about how do you go in and just write about everything uh and not just uh you know those those sort of things and i and i and that's something that resonates with me is like that is the way that i want to write about uh, ideas. I don't. I want everything to be on the table as part of, um, uh, you know, 
how to understand the idea or the the set of events or, or whatever it is that, that that we're looking at uh and i i guess yeah that that's the thing that i if i were to try and put my finger on one thing that i found so uh, captivating about about your work and, and trying to be like oh, that's what I want to be able to do I think it's that that aspect of it you know yeah, yeah great yeah. yeah yeah I think you know in the academy you um, you're kind of trained to be anxious about other specialists people who know more than you do and you, you have to resist that you have to feel that if you're an intelligent person and you do the work you can find something to say um, it might not be as profound, but it's but it can be worthwhile. So that's that's the you have to have that you have, that's the approach you have to take, I think. Um, otherwise, you're just siloing yourself, I think, and you're in doing that, you're restricting your audience. Yeah, Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. This was great. Yeah, uh, um, you really know my work, so I appreciate oh it. Oh my God, you have you would you would be appalled if you knew how <laughs> how much of my life I've spent uh, reading, right. going don't back tell. through the art. Yeah, don't you don't you don't you don't want to know. All right. Well, thank you very much. Yep. Thank you so much. Uh, I will. Uh, right. I'll be in touch. I'll let you know when the episode's uh, coming out. Okay. Good. Bye.